Welcome to IT Visionaries, created by The Mission, your number one source for accelerated learning. On today's episode of IT Visionaries, we are joined by Jabjeet Tulsi, the CTO of Carta. In his 20-year career, Jabjeet led engineering teams at Google, Microsoft, and eBay. His teams built products like Google Analytics and most recently, ShopBot, eBay's AI tool which combines artificial intelligence and commerce to create highly personalized shopping experiences. In this episode, we discuss the future of AI, his favorite chatbots, how cloud computing is becoming a commodity, and what Carta is doing to change cap table management. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. We're joined by a special guest, Chipsheet. How's it going? It's going great. So we have a great episode coming for you today. We're going to be talking about AI. We're going to talk about cloud computing, about building culture within your organization from an expert who's worked at companies like Google, Microsoft, and now Carta. So tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. I've led uh, engineering teams at the companies that you mentioned. I started off at UC Berkeley working there. Oh, Go Bears. I didn't know that. (laughs) I worked there, actually. Go Bears. I went to Microsoft, incubated a a product or two, came out to Google, worked at Google Analytics, built that team from scratch, also worked on YouTube long-form media. From there, went to a startup called StumbleUpon, and then spent some time back at uh, Microsoft again, building out product ads, after which I went to eBay and ran their cloud compute as well as the AI vision for eBay. Great. And so... We kind of talked a little bit off air about, obviously, there's a ton of differences between the IT part of the business versus the technologist part of the business, you know, the difference between the CIO and the CTO. And obviously, a lot of the folks listening that are IT leaders know that we talk a ton about IT and how they partner with business. But kind of, could you share a little bit about how you view your role as the CTO of Carta? Sure. So I think there's a couple of questions in there. So first and foremost, I have never really played a CIO role ever in, in any of these companies. So from a technology perspective, the differences I imagine aren't that that many. It's just what are you trying to build? Are you trying to build something for the internal folks or something for an external audience? And most of the time I've actually built products for the external audience. Maybe the differences are when you actually have an internal audience, they're pretty close and they're telling you every day what to do and what to build for them. When you have an external audience, you are actually looking for something new for them to build out or a pain point that they might have. I had a great engineer who used to work for me at Google. This guy was very accomplished. He was an ACM award winner and uh, he coined the phrase, do what I mean, not what I say. So you actually had a license plate that read that. That's great. Uh, DWIM. And uh, Warren, which was his name, uh, would always say that, you know, what people tell you and what they actually want are two very different things. So how do you actually go figure that out? So to me, as a technologist, that's what you have to go figure out. There's an aspect of product in there. There's an aspect of engineering in there. But that's what you need to go figure out. So let's kind of dive into some of the early days. What, What things were you working on at Microsoft? Let's take the the most recent example. So at Microsoft, I built product ads. These are ads that you, when you type in Canon T3i into Bing as a browser, you come back with the ads that are the little JPEG images that yeah. show you the the ad. 
So the whole system of how that works is very different from textual ads in terms of the three blue links that you might see that are similar ads types. And so building that whole infrastructure that actually incorporates all the feeds, does all the data science work, and then shows it to the end user in a visual display, part of the things that I built out. And transitioning on to Google Analytics, sure. you're saying you built the team from scratch. I mean, talk me through kind of that process. I mean, sure. you know, obviously we could probably just do an hour just on that. But I mean, as someone who's used Google Analytics for years, it's pretty amazing that just how much functionality has been built into the product. I mean, I'm, I'm super fascinated to hear kind of from the early days. Sure. So when I got there, I think we had uh, about eight engineers total. And Google had just acquired Urchin Software. And so a few of the co-founders were there. And I, I was brought in to help lead the engineering effort. And I think I built that team out to a little over 100 during the course of the next three years that I worked there. And this probably dovetails well into the culture aspect of things as well. One of the cool things about Google Analytics and the team that we built, it's one of probably one of my top two favorite teams I've ever worked with. We built that team from scratch. The culture that we set in the team was one that you know really embodied aspects of fun. So first and foremost, fun. You got to have some fun while you're at work. You work on hard problems, which Google Analytics was a very hard problem to work on. You learn from each other and you, the people that you trust. Building all that out and then doing it in a way that we were scaling so astronomically highly over the course of these three years that actually just keeping the systems up and running was always an interesting problem first and foremost, but then doing it with less and less compute resource. So actually using a compute resource wisely and then building new and innovative products. So before streaming was called streaming, in 2007, we started working on a, a problem that we has now become streaming. It used to be you know, batch-oriented systems in those days, and we kept removing some of the batch projects that existed during the course of time and got it down to the where when the data came in, we were actually making it available for the user to be able to see in real time. And this is, you know, in the 2007 era. Nowadays, that's pretty common, commonplace. But in those days, it was pretty unique to Google Analytics. Actually, even today, I find people talking about Batch and SQL. And I think during those days of 2006, 2007 era, I had an adage. It said, uh, Batch and SQL are dead, 2005 called. And <laughs> <laughs> But surprisingly, it still seems to be around. Both Batch and SQL are very much around. So when, you, when you're talking about the like, pace of innovation that was happening, are you talking about just Google in general with the amount of like, search traffic? Or are you talking about Google Analytics specifically? I mean, I guess it's both. It's both. Keep in mind that a large percentage of the web uses Google Analytics. Pretty much everybody you, know, you talk to on the web uses GA. And the scale as the, the web grew, obviously Google grew really well as well. But in Google Analytics case, because of the fact that all of the web used it, it made it a much larger and, and faster trajectory. Switching gears to eBay, what types of projects were you working on there? So at eBay, the big area that we spent the last couple of years on was really defining a vision for what does it mean to be a AI-managed marketplace. So if you were to build eBay today, what would that look like? And a couple of things that were top of mind was 
Today, you would really be using AI in new and interesting ways. And then how would you actually use the cloud platforms of, the, of today as well to potentially go to the public cloud? So the on the first one, I would say that the AI managed marketplace is a really interesting problem. I should probably clarify as well that eBay has always done some version of machine learning, whether that be in search, whether that be in you know, a variety of other areas around trust sciences, around shipping. There's always been some aspect of AI and recommendations as well. What we were talking about was this fourth wave of AI, which is this next generation of artificial intelligence that really allows you to use new and interesting ideas around natural language understanding, semantic search, computer vision. eBay has one of the largest catalogs of images for products, as an example. Yeah. And so how can we use that in an interesting way to actually allow for users to be able to do that, to use uh, eBay new new ways. So, what are some of the examples of like semantics and things that people are using? Like, what is that? I mean, I, I'd imagine. I mean, I type into just in Google search all the time. So many different things that are. Right. What are some of the examples that you were seeing? Sure. So, a a great example of uh, search would be we relaunched eBay in China last year, and one of the things that we did was the ability to be able to type in either Chinese or English and get real-time search results back for products and then get them ranked. All of those were super important because either you have to type it in English only or in, in Chinese, but with the new semantic search methodology, you can actually embed both types of languages into the same space. And so that suddenly gives you a much more powerful way of allowing search to happen. That's in- wild. So is that like, I mean, that would be like, searching in Spanglish or something like that, right? That's right. right. That's yeah. exactly right. So in this case, Chinese English. So uh, allowing you to actually have both embedded objects in there. Another example of this is actually using computer vision in interesting ways as well. We launched a a personal shopping assistant called eBay ShopBot uh, about two years ago. And part of the thing that we did as part of ShopBot was it understands you in natural language. So you can actually talk to it as you would talk to a real human. You could send it a picture. You could send it an emoji. You could, you know, talk to it uh, via voice. And we understood all these different modalities, which, you know, is an interesting problem in itself. How do you actually understand all different types of modalities and still respond to the user, especially when a user switches modalities as well? So what happens if they started a question by typing it in, but then switch to sending you a picture. And the example that is always valid is, if I was trying to buy a dress for my wife, it's super hard to do because I don't really know how to describe it. But if I could take a picture of that dress and send it, then ShopBot could actually recommend some really interesting things back to you. So it could actually say, you know, are you looking for a similar dress, a similar designer, a similar cut, a similar color, which I wouldn't usually know anything about, or all of the above, and then respond back and guide you through a result set. I mean, especially when you're talking about things that you see in the wild. And I think younger generations are going to be the ones who, I mean, if you look at obviously the rise of Snapchat and and the way that Instagram is used and all of that, younger people are way more comfortable just taking photos of everything and being able to send it, right? I mean, I'd imagine that that type of user data you're seeing a massive like uptick in those type of things. Absolutely. So I think the the thing that we call it is camera as a platform. So the that term, which I think Snapchat probably started out in a major way as that being the starting place for you to actually start an app. 
Compared to that, you know, others have started to follow a piece. And in, in the case of eBay, it was really about how do we build that into the shopping journey as well. That's really interesting. So, and this is, I mean, a broader kind of trend in bots and AI and converse, conversationality is making it more like a conversation that you would have with a friend, right? I mean, the same things that you would send to a friend or to a colleague or whatever, the same things that we want to be sending to a bot, because then we're kind of, for lack of a better term, speaking the same language. That's exactly right. I think it's become much much more common for you to be able to talk to a bot. My favorite example of this is, and I have no connection to this company whatsoever, but they're building a bot that actually, if you're lonely, you can talk to it at, at any given point. And the other one that was my favorite, I think, that Facebook has was like a quote of the day from your favorite religion. So, wow. you know, uh, whatever floats your fancy, you just pick your religion and you pick a type of quote you want and then out pops a quote on a daily basis. So people are getting much more used to this idea of being able to talk to an intelligent non-human. So it's really interesting. We we talk a lot about app development on the show. One of the things that you know I find so interesting is that when you're trying to create an app, like if you were to create an app for like internal use in a company or things like that, there's so many things that you could create with that, especially like a sales tool where you could say, you know, hey, I sent out 50 cold emails today to you know pre-qualified prospects, of course. Mm-hmm but I need an opening line or right. something like that or right. whatever the whatever the use is. But things like that I think are so interesting because you could make it as something that is used by just, you know, company employees. Absolutely. Um, and the thing I would recommend in, in cases like that is keeping it simple because users aren't quite used to the technology yet. So I'll give you an example. When we launched ShopBot, one of the things that we learned very quickly was if you weren't talking to it, as in giving it voice, your conversation tended to be very terse because you were typing in that case. In which case, you know, it was almost search query-like. But the minute you started to talk to it, it became much more verbose. So the just those simple things that you learn by doing that. People wanted to send us emojis, a lot of them. Just even like if they're done and with a thumbs up and such. So understanding those was very important. That's so funny. So people are sending emojis all the time to, to ShopBot. All the time. During right. Halloween season, a lot of pumpkin emojis. The point being that people do actually almost want to talk to it like a friend. And so that's uh, super common. So keeping that in mind, keeping it super simple up, up ahead, and then you know be prepared for the unexpected because people will surprise you every single day. So, so we're building a bot here at the mission called yep. podcast.ai, not to plug our bot, but it's a lot of the same thing where we're trying to figure out like podcast searchability, right? It's like a huge problem is there's an ever-growing number of podcasts that are out there and people are looking to podcast as a way to get their information on a daily basis. So how do you curate that experience, right? And there's millions out there. So how do you do that? And how do you do it in a fun conversational way? That's right. So switching gears to Carta. Yeah. So you recently joined as the CTO. Tell me about kind of what you're so excited about with Carta and actually just a a background on the company in general. Sure. So one of the reasons I re- uh, I'm really excited about Carta, obviously I just joined, so I should be um, <laughs> um, regardless. But I think one of the reasons I'm really excited about Carta is the company has a superb vision around building out an exchange for both private and public markets 
with the end goal of really converging those. So if you're a private company today and you want to stay private, or if you're a private company that wants to go public, or a public company that you know wants to go back to being private, we should offer you all all those capabilities up front. There should be no reason why you, you know you have any barriers between any any of these. So that'd be number one. Number two, if you know you want different types of liquidity, because that's usually what it is. It's about different types of liquidity. We want to make sure that we offer that to you as well. But fundamentally, it is a data information game. If you look at what is the difference between a public and a private company, it's primarily the amount of data that's available to the public. So how do you actually make data available in a way that is is a mixture of the public and the private world and gives you progressive disclosure? It gives you a progressive disclosure on what you want to enable out to the end public, whether that be a particular group of people, you know, a VC or a private equity firm, or to the larger public world at large as a public market. We want to offer the data disclosure to whatever extent that you care about. And so when you're talking about public, publicly available information, you're talking about you know quarterly earnings reports, you're talking about all the things that public companies are required to do That's right. that private companies don't do, right? That's but right. it provides less transparency. transparency. That's right. And so the aim is there's a level of transparency that you can choose. Mm-hmm. And depending on that level of transparency, if you're listed on a public exchange, you are required by by what you know, the SEC says you should you should do or not do. In a similar vein, even in the private world, the, the firms that are investing in you have access to some information. How do you make that standardized so that they can get access? What happens when you raise a round of funding? What information do you want to actually offer to folks who are about to, you know, fund you? And so those levels of information are basically on a slider scale versus a binary scale, we believe. That's so interesting. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why we were, you know, excited to bring you on the podcast is it feels like it is something that should have been around for a long time, right? That's right. It feels like a a technology and a platform that should have been around. And it's a little mind blowing that it kind of hasn't been. And when you talk to people who have tried to figure out liquidity when they're in those types of situations, Mm -hmm. there's so much you know, a lack of understanding about what they can and can't do. People are, you know, bringing in legal teams and all of that sort of stuff. It's, it's pretty crazy that something would be that complex and which creates a lot of barriers to entry for people to even want to go work at some of those type of companies. That's exactly right. I think it's traditionally been handled by small firms, small law firms, uh, small accounting firms that actually make a lot of this happen and then Excel spreadsheets beyond that. So, and we all know that, you know, anytime you have spreadsheets in the mix, it's a, it's a tough, tough situation. And yeah. then you're having multiple people learn the exact same scenario uh, over time because there's no standardized way of doing that. So one of the things that, you know, got me really excited about Carta, as you mentioned, is it just felt like it's something that needs to exist today and at a global level, because if you look at the overall world economy today, startups are definitely part of it, a large part of it. And we expect that to continue to grow over the course of time. And I think there's a large difference now in how many companies are going public on a day. I mean, we see this all the time with a lot of these very large companies mm-hmm. that haven't gone public yet for one reason or another. You know, and whether or not that's a trend or cyclical, it's it's kind of almost irrelevant, I think, in the long term. What's more important is that there needs to be a tool out there that can 
help folks understand and like see where they are at any given time with regards to like their liquidity level shares, all of that sort of stuff. That's right. And I think part of it is just, and you're absolutely right, by the way, the, the number of public companies out there has actually decreased versus increased over a course of the last two or three decades. But the, the mission for Carta is really about we're agnostic to what you want to, where you want to be. We're just going to help you both standardize on the data information and how much you want to share, as well as what levels of liquidity you want to have. And then third, you know, where you want to be in your journey at any given point. So for those folks that are listening that are really interested in working in a private company, but have been scared off because they're worried about, you know, cap table. Management. You know, yeah. Yes. Management and confusions. Is this something that is kind of bridges the gap for those folks that just are saying, hey, I don't really want to know. Yeah, I mean, come talk to us. We have a, a great set of blogs, by the way, that actually try and dispel a lot of these notions about and make it easier for you. So absolutely. Awesome. Okay, let's get into some of the other stuff real quick with just upcoming things that you're really excited about for AI, for cloud computing, and then some leadership stuff, and then the lightning round, which I have not told you about. All but right. We have a lightning <laughs> round coming. So Sounds good. Like, what are you most excited about with AI and some of the cool things that you're seeing, you kind of talked about a few of them, but kind of where do you think this industry is is heading? I mean, industry is like, for lack yeah. of a better term, because it's kind of like any industry, like social media being industry, it's not really an industry, sure. but AI is not, you know, there's many, many, many companies, every company is going to need to be an AI company at some point with the amounts of data. What are the cool things that you're seeing? Sure. So the, the way, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. So I think I look at this as uh, the 90s and early 2000s was the era of the web. And then the 2000 to, you know, 2000, let's say 10, 12, 15 was the mobile era. I mean, we forget about it, but mobile phones like really became in the hands of the consumers in like 2008 when the first iPhone really launched. And I, I would say it's the 3G version that really got people going pretty actively on it. And even then, if you looked at it, the screen was actually pretty small. Yeah. And, you know, shopping, for example, was a very hard proposition in those days. So to me, 2015 on and, and possibly the next uh, decade are going to be the era of, of AI. And you're absolutely right. Everybody has to do it. This is not a optional thing anymore. The part that's really interesting is GPUs in 2015 really you know, got you over the hump in terms of actually being able to use AI in a much more interesting way. But today with specialized processing units, I mean, Google has TPUs um, that they've built out. NVIDIA is out launching their new hybrid versions. Intel is intent on launching their hybrid versions as well. So I think those are really moving computing to a place where you can now do something that was only previously conceived of. And the other thing to mention is, a lot of the current, for example, deep learning type systems were envisioned in the 60s, 50s and 60s. They just couldn't actually do the computation. It would have taken forever in those days to actually get something computed, like years for them to compute the, the problem that today we can do in hours. And so that's the part that has really made it interesting. You know, it was funny. We talked to the CEO of AR Labs and she was sharing with us how electron photonic computing, how it's going to be, you know, the future of computing because, you know, Moore's laws basically coming to the point where we just can't move data fast enough. And, you know, using light, you can basically do that faster. And it was a really interesting kind of thought experiment that people are creating things right now 
that can't be even realized potentially 10 years from now unless we have other types of technology advancements. That's fascinating that people and things that were created in the 50s and 60s that we just had no way of of leveraging that stuff because we just didn't have the computing power. Exactly right. Uh, I think computer science's patterns and patterns have existed for for a long time over the last 50, 60 years. And we're just able to recognize these patterns and really move them into effect in much faster ways today than we were ever able to do before. Or actually, you know, envision some of the stuff that's happening. There's population and genetic algorithms that are still very heavily resource intensive that are hard to do because they take time. And so these will all become much simpler to do and give us much better results. What are some of your favorite, and this is actually a lightning round question, sure. but I'm, I'm popping it to the front. What are some of your favorite like chatbots and uses of AI right now? We, funny enough, we talk about all the time how, uh, how Gmail has the three options now sure. to respond to things, but as like a nice time-saving thing. But what are some of the, your favorite things that you're seeing right, out right there? I got to mention Nourish first and foremost, right? So ShopBot by far was a lot of fun to to build out, but also the fact that it was multimodal in nature, which is, as far as I know, the only one out there that actually does that, understands all these different modalities. I fundamentally were also interested in camera. I yeah. think the, the ability to be able to understand an image, multiple objects in an image, or the scene, the context behind that image is really interesting. And surprisingly, the camera sees more than you would think. And an example there is, if you actually look and think about a Burberry brand, a branded item, it comes in many different colors and, and patterns than the, what we would consider a Burberry pattern, which is pretty standard. But somehow, deep learning can actually figure that out pretty darn amazing and quickly and that's the part that you know always got me it was like when you actually just told the machine to go think about it for for a few hours and it would come back and come back with a really interesting answer so one of the things i saw that was that was really funny and i can't remember if i shared it on the podcast before but there was a there's like a meme that was like ai can tell you with like 80% certainty that this is a photo of an elephant, but a six-year-old or but a four-year-old can tell you with a 99% certainty that it's an elephant. And I think that there's some like, you know, there's truth in jest there that there's things that humans can do really well. But one of the things that humans do really poorly and that machines are really good at is pattern recognition. Right. And they can recognize patterns that are so much more complex and they're really, really good at it. So I think that we're going to see those type of things over time where it can be all different types of images, like you said, that have extremely complex things that it's that it's looking at, where we just really couldn't tell as humans, we couldn't tell the difference. I think what you raise is, is another hidden secret of, of AI, which is AI is about as good as the data that you represent or trained it with. I have this notion of smart data, which is slightly different than training data. What we found was just shoving a bunch of data and saying, go learn on this wasn't always the best option. Actually getting data in a way that made sense. And I'll give you an example. If you look at a shoe and if you look at what is a, a golf club cover, you know, the little mm -hmm. uh, socks that you put on, a, on top of a golf club co cover, depending on the angle, they look about the same. They could look like a stiletto. It could look like a funny, you know, clown shoe. And they look about the same. And, you know, you could look at it even a human could look at it and say, yeah, I, I could see how that's similar in shape and size. And so actually training 
uh, the training data that you provide goes a very long way in that accuracy that you just mentioned. You can make that 80% accuracy much, much higher probability of being accurate closer to 99 if you have the right set of training data. The problem comes when you don't have that. That's really interesting. And I think I can read between the lines there that you might have went through a few iterations of shoe you have to. shoes and as an uh, example. Exactly. Yeah, and club head covers at your time in eBay because yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of both of those being sold. That's right. And so it's just a matter of it's both the training data set, the smart data that you have to put in to do that, and the iteration. It can't be a one time fire and forget. It is a it's a constant evolution. So a lot of the data scientists will tell you today. That's what they have to do. They have to go in and massage the data. Super important. For cloud computing, you know, we talked a little bit off air about how it's not necessarily as commonplace as you might think as a mindset that cloud is becoming a commodity. What do you think the going forward, you know, the rise of cloud computing, how do you think that it's going to be seen in five years? Is this just going to be kind of a common, I mean, five years being random, but Mm -hmm. Is this just going to be seen as a commodity by everyone as no one is building their own servers or is are people still going to try to kind of build capacity within their organizations? The thing that's happening now is that one cloud is becoming a definite commodity. It's become cheaper to the total cost of ownership has become way cheaper to go with the cloud than to actually build your own server set. Probably a decade ago this was not true. Probably even, you know, eight, 5 years ago that was not true. Today, thanks to competition, you know, the top five players are really battling prices down to a much lower level. And they're also spending billions of dollars individually in these cloud compute platforms and taking all the risk as well, where they're taking the risk on the type of CPU, the type of memory and so on. And you can constantly upgrade to whatever latest and greatest that you want and not have to worry about having to build that out. Because one of the other hidden costs of you know building your own servers and data centers is you go build it, but it's usually obsolete by the time you have built it. Because by the time you bought it and racked it and you know started to serve out of it, there's something new and interesting out in market that probably beats it by some percentage. So how do you actually go build out that level of cloud compute while the cloud compute providers are doing it at the billion dollar scale and you are very likely to only do it at the million dollar scale? Okay, let's get into the lighting round. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? I use a pilot app called ForeFlight. It's my favorite app. What does it do? So it lets you plan your trip, look at weather, do all kinds of other activities that you need as a as a pilot. And do you fly here in Palo Alto? I do, actually. Oh, that's so... And what type of plane? I have a Cirrus SR22 Turbo, single engine. Wow. Who knew? That's yeah. pretty cool. What's your favorite time-saving tool? Right now, it's an app called Asana. Oh, we use Asana. Yeah. Asana's great. Yeah. Shout out to the people at Asana. What's your favorite use of AI or chatbots that you've seen recently that is the most fun? Besides chatbots, have to be something in the camera realm. It's actually being able to recognize objects real time. Do you have a favorite team, sports or otherwise? I'm not usually into sports. Favorite podcast? <laughs> you don't have to say this one. Probably have to be Radio Lab. Favorite recent book? I only read like crap mystery novels and, and sci-fi. So uh, what's the one I've been reading recently? This guy named Rick Brown has like 17 part series that I've been reading. Oh, we love, I mean, we love science fiction. You can see all the books at the Mission Studio here. We have tons of, tons of Philip K. Dick and all sorts of crazy fun stuff. Right on. 
Favorite one-day getaway in the Bay Area? Uh, Napa. What do you do for fun other than fly? So I like speed in general. So I have a motorcycle that I ride. And honestly, between that and kids, that's most of everything I can do. What's your best advice for a first-time CTO? Keep it simple, learn the team, build a great culture. Any leadership best practices on, on building a team that you could share? It's not something that you can teach, but if you truly care fundamentally and you're empathetic, the team will realize that. So keep that on top of mind. Super important. If you can figure out what you want your values to be, that'll ensure that your culture survives and will evolve over time. Because cultures evolve every single time you bring a new person on. The values are what are more enduring. So make sure that you pick the right ones. That's it for the lightning round. Fast and easy questions. Great. Not unlike the lightning platform by Salesforce, which makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. Salesforce, building apps is everyone's business. Learn more at salesforce.com slash build apps. That's it. That's it for the lightning round. That's it for the interview. Any other things you'd like to share with the listeners? All good. Hey, thanks so much for stopping by and we really appreciate it. And uh, check out Carta. Thank you again to our friends at Salesforce. IT Visionize is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce, a leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, now everyone can build apps for their organization. Learn more at salesforce.com slash buildapps.